You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 309, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 20th, 2017. Today's guests are Dr. Clayton Rose, the 15th president of Bowdoin College in Brunswick, and nationally known entrepreneur Elena Marie Harris, creator of Elena Marie, a collection of bait bag inspired clutches. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Dr. Clayton Rose is the 15th president of Bowdoin College. After a highly successful career in finance, he earned his PhD in sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and later served as a faculty member at Harvard Business School, where he taught and wrote about the responsibilities of leadership, managerial values and ethics, and the role of business in society. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I think the thing I'm most interested in and what I'd like to start with is this interesting um, pivot shift in your career. You you were doing, and actually more than one, you, you were doing something, you were very good at it, and then you said, oh, I think I want to do something different now. And that required really a significant mindset change for you and a lot of work. So tell me about that. Well, the first thing I would say is I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to have uh, done different things, and I've uh, had some amazing chapters to my career. Um, I've had some very cool jobs, and as I tell anyone that's willing to listen, I now have the coolest job I'll ever have as president of Bowdoin. It's really quite a remarkable thing for me. Um, but the the idea of going through uh, different chapters in life uh, isn't one that I planned. It wasn't, you know, when I graduated from college, this is my plan. Um, can always look back on a career uh, like yours and kind of create a linear narrative, but it is much more uncertain than that. Uh, but I came to various decision points, uh, profound decision points, uh, a couple of times and decided to take different paths at, at each of those points. I very much enjoyed my first career uh, in finance. Um, it was a different kind of business than it is today. Uh, at a different time and place in, in the nature of business and in our society. Uh, but I worked at a firm where the values were terrific, the people were terrific, the culture was great. We did business in a particular way for our clients and really focused on serving their needs. Um, and then uh, we just the firm that I worked at decided to merge, and uh, I was part of that decision process, but quickly concluded that the new firm was just not a place that I was comfortable. And the business itself was changing. And so uh, I left, I left on good terms, but I decided simply to leave and kind of repot myself. And I left on, I remember walking out of the building on a Thursday night after 21 years and uh, not having any idea what I was gonna do next. I went to have dinner with my wife and kind of begin a new chapter. And I took a year to think about what I was gonna do and did some things there in the interim. I began to teach at Columbia and NYU as, a, as a, uh, an adjunct professor. Um, but I had always had in my mind 
uh, as a function of a great liberal arts education that I received, the idea of going back and getting a PhD is something very personal for me. Uh, there wasn't a grand plan associated with it, but it was the idea of um, uh, having spent many years in my prior chapter thinking about issues uh, kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. I wanted to see if I had the intellectual flexibility to flip that and go a mile deep on an issue that I cared a lot about. Um, and so after a year and a lot of advice and ultimately my wife saying to me, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it because you're going to get involved in something else and then you're going to be too old and so forth. Uh, I applied to several uh, uh, PhD programs in sociology um, that were constrained by where we lived. My kids were in high school and it was uh, so we needed to stay there. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get into a couple and very fortunate that uh, the University of Pennsylvania um, uh, admitted me and, and uh, I had a really remarkable experience there. I, I, I could never uh, um, say enough great things about the faculty and my fellow students and the institution. And to take a risk on an older guy who was going through this transition uh, was something that was uh, uh, quite special about how they thought about um, their students and, and what they were able to uh, provide for me. Um, I studied issues of race in America. I was very interested in this. I had run the global diversity effort in the firm that I was uh, worked at in my first chapter in business. Um, I had some uh, personal interest in the question of why we can't get over ourselves in 21st century America around issues of race and identity and decided I wanted to see if I could really understand it uh, by looking at all of the literature and studying it and developing some of my own research. Uh, and so that was what I did. Uh, by the time I had finished that uh, program at Penn, and I was also then had been teaching for a number of years at Columbia and NYU and also at Penn, um, I concluded I really loved being in the academy. Uh, I thought I would, but I found that I did. Uh, and so I sought um, a full-time role on a, as a member of a faculty and was, again, deeply fortunate to be uh, asked to join the faculty at the Harvard Business School where I taught for uh, eight years um, before coming to Bowdoin. Um, and that was another chapter, so. Why was sociology so interesting to you? So interestingly, uh, it wasn't sociology as a discipline that, 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 that was the first decision. The first decision for me was, uh, what is the issue that I wanted to study? And the issue that I wanted to study was the issue of race, race in America and this kind of um, um, simple but profound question of why we can't get over ourselves. What's driving uh, uh, the notion that race remains a profound uh, issue and uh, dividing line in our society? Sociology then becomes, I think, the natural home for that question. Uh, and so uh, that's what led me to the discipline. And I'm someone who had never taken a sociology course in my life before I began my program at Penn. It was just not part of the, the array of, uh, of courses that I'd taken as an undergraduate or as an MBA student. So why can't we get over ourselves? Well, this is so one of the things that uh, I think my colleagues uh, on the faculty would uh, and, and graduate students around the world would uh, agree with me on is that the more you know about something, the more questions it raises and, and the fewer answers you really have. So I don't have an answer to that question. It remains, a, as we've, we see in society today, perhaps more than we have uh, uh, in a number of years, how profoundly uh, important 
the issue of race is, the issue of difference, the issue of identity is in our culture and our society today. But why that creates areas of division and not the notion of celebrating difference, understanding each other, getting the most from the different perspectives that we bring remains, uh, uh, remains an open question for me. You mentioned your children being in high school when you made this mm. decision. And I would imagine that would have been, um, well, let's use the word interesting for them to have a parent who had been so long in one particular career doing one particular thing and then deciding, I'm going to do this differently now. Did you get feedback from them along the way on this? Um, yeah, sure. I have two boys, two sons, um, uh, who are both off in life now. Um, uh, and they, it was interesting. I, I think the decision uh, that I made was not a decision that was, um, what's the best way to describe it? That it was somehow at odds with how they saw me as a human being and as their father. Um, and I say that because while, while they were growing up, the, the business that I was in and the firm that I was at were all that they knew, um, I didn't define myself as a human being, as a father, as a person by my job. Um, first and foremost, I defined it around my family and my marriage and my kids. Uh, and that ha has and is and will, will always be my first priority. And so while I love my work, my work itself doesn't define me as a human being. I think there's something deeper for ourselves. It's critically important to me. I spend enormous amounts of time and energy on it. But it, it isn't who I am. And so the pivot that I began from the first chapter into the second chapter, as I talked to them about what I was interested in, and they knew my intellectual interests and my, uh, my, my kind of naive desire to be uh, engaged in intellectual ideas throughout my life, this kind of fit very well with how they saw me. Has it now become interesting for you to be working with an age group that is clearly focused on developing identity? I mean, you've been, you taught at Harvard Business School, so slightly older students, but now you're with kids, well, young adults who are 17 to 22. And identity is something that's very much in development during that time of life. Drawing on your own experience, um, what is it that you have to offer to this age group? Well, I, I think I, I think about that question in two parts. How do I think about my role as a teacher, uh, which is the thing I, I think I love most, uh, and my role as president of a liberal arts college? Right? And those are two distinct kind of roles. Um, with respect to the first, and it does very much uh, bleed into the second, um, uh, we have just amazing students. They're the, in the interactions I have with our students, the ability to get to know them, to spend time with them, um, and to teach, and I did teach this last fall, um, is the jet fuel that, that uh, just keeps me going through all, the, through all the other aspects of my job, many of which are interesting, some of which are not as interesting, and there's some challenging moments and so forth in any job like this. Um, but uh, working with uh, our students has just been a, a remarkable joy and privilege. They are amazing in how thoughtful, interesting, uh, um, engaged, different, 
and interested in one another. And one of the things that I've said uh, to almost anyone who will listen is that when we think about what makes a Bowdoin student unique and special, they are, uh, they're super smart, but there are other places where there are lots of super smart students. They come to Bowdoin to do their best work and to be their best selves. Um, and that starts to differentiate them in some cases from other places a little bit. But the thing that's really different about our students is that they come uh, being super smart and to do their best work and to be their best selves, uh, but to um, engage with one another and to collaborate, not to compete with one another. They do not see their, uh, their work together at Bowdoin as being a zero-sum game where I only do better if you do worse, but rather where there's a collective interest in learning and in helping one another. And I've seen this in lots of different perspectives around uh, the life on campus uh, and in dealing with our alums who share that kind of uh, um, culture and, and set of values. But I saw it play out um, uh, in just stark detail when I taught this last fall. I taught a first-year seminar. I had a group of 16 first-year students. And uh, from the first day, they were focused on helping each other, challenging, pushing, and so forth, but ultimately helping each other to get better and better. And no one saw uh, uh, their ability to, um, to do well or uh, to, to, to learn uh, to, is, is somehow being a competitive exercise with somebody else. Given that this generation has been occasionally maligned as being the um, the me generation, although I would say that many generations are, <laughs> are so-called, yep. um, were you surprised to find how collaborative this group of students was? Um, no. Um, I think I understood the Bowdoin culture uh, uh, very well when I arrived. Um, uh, it's been, I'm now in my third year. Um, and having had an opportunity to uh, teach uh, undergraduates and graduate students for the last you know, 15 years, and then having raised two sons who are now in their uh, early, very early 30s, um, you know, I, I have some sense of, of the generation, and I certainly agree with the, with the notion of kind of maligned and misguided view of, of what um, this generation is all about. They are quite remarkable, and, and as we look around at the world and see some of the challenges that are out there and the, and the problems that we have, and, and there are certainly moments where it can, get, uh, it can be easy to get down and depressed. I am enormously optimistic about where we're going and the opportunities we have as a society and as a world because of our students and what I see in them. Uh, and I hope and, and, and believe that that's been true of kind of every generation as we look to, to, to the future. But I can tell you that uh, whatever the caricatures are of young people today, they, they, uh, they're certainly not representative of the, of the students at Bowdoin and I think more generally of, of this generation. My children are 23, 21, and 16, so they're squarely in this generation. Yeah. And I have to agree with you, my interactions with them I don't think are any different than my interactions with their friends. And there is something that is hopeful and willing to work hard and persevere. One of the things that has come up in the last year has been the change in our political climate. And what I saw with my middle child, who was on campus when this happened, was... Um, Fear, a fear that I had never seen from her before. She called me up. She felt um, almost as if the world had kind of caved in on her. She was so surprised by the, the way that the election turned out. Did you get that sense from students on your campus? Uh, sure. 
Um, I think that uh, for a couple of observations, I guess. One is that for many of, uh, of our students and other students in, in, uh, in this generation, um, the results of the election were, in a sense, of the first major failure that they had experienced, right? They'd, these are students that are used to doing incredibly well and used to working hard and persevering and pushing through and ultimately uh, realizing the, the objectives that they had in mind. Uh, and I think uh, the vast majority of students certainly went home from dinner on election night believing that the outcome would be different. Um, and and that, that's true whether you happen to be a student who voted one way or another way, I think the whole group of them. And so for those students who were supporters of uh, Hillary Clinton, it was an, uh, a really uh, momentous moment for a number of them. I happened to have been teaching my class the Wednesday morning after. I had an 8.30 class, so it was the first class of the day and the morning after, and my students came in, and many of them had been up all night, and, uh, and they were, um, uh, I think, deeply confused about what had just occurred. So we put the syllabus aside for a while and had a conversation about what had happened and how could this happen and why did it happen and so forth. Um, and, you know, in some ways, and we can spend some time, Lisa, talking about this, it relates a little bit to the bubbles that we all exist in, in talking only to those folks that um, reinforce our own views. And so you get the sense that that's the world when the world is a much bigger place than that. And what, one of the interesting things that, that happened in this conversation in, in, in class is that um, I have uh, a young man, a student who's from the Midwest, and uh, people were going around and kind of trying to isolate a little bit about what happened and why and what they'd missed. And uh, he said, uh, you know, let me tell you that I'm, I voted for um, Secretary Clinton, but I, I'm from rural Wisconsin. Um, uh, my friends didn't vote for her and my parents' friends didn't vote for her. And they didn't vote for her and he went through the reasons about rural versus urban and a sense of dislocation and you know, many of the things that we've now been able, I think, over the last few months to kind of understand better and tease out as to, as to what the reasons are that um, the election turned out the way it did. And it was really a remarkable thing to watch a number of the students in class for the first time hearing from a peer about a, a rationale. They may not agree with it. They may, you know, they may have different, different ways of articulating uh, why, why those uh, reasons may exist. But they heard a very cogent, uh, peer-driven uh, uh, rationale for why the outcome was the outcome. And that led to another discussion about how we think differently about things in this bubble that we may exist in and so forth. So it was a really, I thought, profound moment for, uh, that began us down another path to think about what has happened here. I would agree with you that we've, we've come to now understand that um, perhaps we were, each of us was existing within some sort of cultural socioeconomic bubble per se, maybe an educational bubble, and then was surprised, and then surprised even as a country. So now that we know that that existed and that we were somewhat um, unable to connect with people outside of our bubble, how do we connect with people outside of our bubble? How do we create conversations so that we understand where people are coming from without um, trying to shut them down because they aren't agreeing with our yeah. point of view? It's a great question, and, and I think in a, a central part of the mission of a great educational institution like Bowdoin. Um, so I've been actually talking about this issue since I arrived on campus um, 
two years ago. Uh, I talked about it in my inaugural address. Uh, that that uh, one of our deep responsibilities and opportunities is uh, to engage with ideas that make us uncomfortable and at times will offend us. Um, to be able to understand how uh, good people and, frankly, not good people think about the world, understand the world, and maybe driving decisions and policies in the world. And the only way, I believe, uh, that we can have effect on the world in a meaningful way is to understand how others think about the world, why their arguments may uh, carry weight and where they may not hold water, and to be able to uh, confront those arguments and those issues and those points of view uh, from a position of confidence, strength, data, analysis, reason, rather than fear engagement with those issues and those arguments. Uh, and so one of the things that we've been working on at Bowdoin for the last couple of years is how we do this better, how we develop the skill and the sensibility among our students to engage in discourse and debate about the hardest, most uh, challenging issues of our time and knowing that you come to college uh, in part uh, to engage with ideas and issues that are going to make you uncomfortable and that may even offend you but are going to push you deeply outside of your comfort zone. Um, and that has at least two uh, uh, deep values. The first is the one that I just discussed, which is that it, it creates the skills and the ability in an individual to be able to have effect in the world, to make a difference once you get out there because you have thought about the, the pushback on your issue, the pushback on, on how you're advocating for something. You understand the data. You know where it's real. You know where it's not. And you're able to analyze it in a thoughtful way, and you've thought about those arguments. But the other is that it gives you respect and, and a, a thoughtful approach uh, to both ideas that are different than your own, and God forbid from, moment to, from time to time we ought to be able to change our minds if we hear an argument that's compelling, and to have respect uh, for individuals with whom you can disagree, but who are at their core good, uh, good human beings who care about the world in the same way that you do. There are a handful of bad human beings out there in any category of, of life, that's not, those aren't really the people that we should be caring about. We're in a place now where we won't have an honest, thoughtful conversation with good people in areas where we disagree. Um, in the baccalaureate address that I gave uh, uh, in May uh, with, to our graduating seniors and their families, I talked about um, one of my closest friends, a, a guy that I've known since the first day of college. Uh, who, um, and I just returned from a week of fishing with him. I fish with him every year, he and his wife and Julianne and I. And uh, he and I are very different in a number of ways. He's a Midwesterner, a Republican. He's a staunch supporter of the NRA. None of those things describe me. But he is one of my dearest friends. And we go and we spend time talking about the world and issues that we disagree about and so forth. And we do it in an agreeable way and trying to understand each other and figure out where, where the kind of essence of our differences lies. Um, and I encouraged our students as they leave, are leaving Bowdoin when I talked about this, to go find their version of, my friend's name is Mike, to go find their version of Mike in life, whether they may already have it. In fact, I had a graduating senior grab me just after the, the commencement ceremony the next day and said, I just want you to know that I already found my Mike here. And it was really cool for me, at least, that some of the students kind of this resonated with them in a way. So long-winded answer, but that's...
Do you think that a liberal arts education uh, can be helpful in developing these skills that you're talking about? I, I think that there's a lot that's been thrown about with um, return on investment in education and the cost of education, which continues to climb. So then some <coughs> people would question, um, why are we educating students on broad-based topics? Why are we not just putting them through whatever set of skills they need to get a job on the other side? Yep. Is there a value in liberal arts, given what you've just described? Yes, profound value. Um, and so let me um, describe that in kind of two broad ways. One is a, um, some categories of value, and then I want to tell a bit of a story. But uh, there are at least three profoundly important reasons why a, a, a liberal arts education adds deep value. Um, the first is, and maybe for me it's the most important, but I think they're all equally important, uh, is that it allows us as human beings to live richer, richer, fuller, deeper lives, to understand the world that we're in, to understand our place in it, and to be able to engage in lifelong learning about all kinds of uh, of issues, whether they're uh, humanistic, social science, scientific, uh, policy, um, economics, so forth. Uh, and to be able to... Um, uh, to, to get a sense for why we are here and the, the, um, the ability that we have to give back to something that's bigger than ourselves. So that's the first point. There's something just deeply profound as human beings to this kind of education. The second is that it, is, uh, it develops the skills and the ability to engage thoughtfully in civic life. Uh, and in the broadest sense, political life in our in our country. And at a time where our political system seems deeply broken, we need uh, uh, as many young people who are educated in a thoughtful way and have an ability to engage uh, with one another and, and to engage uh, these issues to help us get better and to pull us out of this morass. And this goes back to some of the things that we were just talking about. So the engagement in civic life is the second. And the third is... Uh, that the skills of a liberal arts education, of critical thinking, of analysis, of how to use data, um, of the ability to communicate well and the ability to learn quickly are all skills that help our students uh, and, and help uh, liberal arts graduates um, uh, enjoy great professional success. Uh, and so this notion that somehow a liberal arts education is divorced from career success is just a myth. There is some power to the myth out there, and it's something that I have a responsibility and other college presidents have a responsibility to, to deal with in a stronger way. Uh, but the data are crystal clear. You get a great liberal arts education, and you can have a great career. And you can major in art history and go into finance. You can major in biology and go to Google. You can major in economics and become a doctor. You can... You can Spend your time in your, uh, during your college years pursuing your intellectual passions, and the data are crystal clear. You can go off and have any kind of career you want. Um, and so uh, uh, deep satisfaction in life and as a human, civic engagement, and career success are uh, three profound values that come from a liberal arts education. And let me just put a little human face on that. We, we have a thing at Bowdoin called the Bowdoin Breakfast. You probably know it well. Um, but we'll have somebody back, an alum back, to um, talk to uh, both students and folks in the community a couple of times a year. And these things usually get four or 500 people coming. Um, uh, some of it's about the Bowdoin food, but mostly it's about the, uh, 
the, the speaker. And in, in the spring, we had a couple, uh, graduates from the early 90s. Um, uh, she was an English major, he was an anthropology major. Uh, they went off, they left Broden, graduated, and went off to, in the early 90s to go work for a little firm in Silicon Valley called Facebook. And they were early there um, and uh, worked there for a while and went off and did a few other things as people do. She is now at Pinterest and he is now at Airbnb. And I was talking to them before they gave their talk and I said, how do you think about the, the role of the humanities and the social sciences in Silicon Valley today? And they said the demand for folks that have the training and sensibility of humanists and social scientists has never been greater because the issue of Silicon Valley and the tech community is, is uh, it's, not, it's not zero about coding. It uh, is it's pivoted now from being less about engineering and much more about dealing with the human problems that technology has created. And all you have to do is read the paper every day to think about what Facebook is facing and Google is facing. Those are the human problems that are created by the technology. And that's where a profound liberal arts education comes in. And we have a huge number of graduates now that are out in Silicon Valley and in other kinds of places like that in the new economy that are having a really powerful impact on the world who have n had nothing to do with the engineering side of things. We have some that are coders and engineers and engage in that work, and that is wonderful work, but it takes all kinds. I recently interviewed um, Joan Benoit Samuelson, obviously Bowdoin graduate, mm. and also um, winner of the first women's uh, Olympic marathon, and also Jean Hoffman, who was the founder of Putney, who just sold her business a few years ago for quite a lot of money. She was an Asian studies major at mm. Bowdoin, and obviously I went to Bowdoin, and, um, and I have I think that you're right. I think that what you're describing, this need for helping create interface, this understanding of how to communicate with other people, um, maybe it's not solely the property of a liberal arts education, but there certainly is a great benefit to offering that to students. It's been really a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I appreciate your taking time out of your very busy schedule. I've been speaking with Dr. Clayton Rose, who is the 15th president of Bowdoin College. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live are available now. Maine Live is a day of inspiring talks and stories of grit by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers who will inspire conversation and connection. This fifth Maine Live is on Thursday, September 21st at USM's Hannaford Hall. Go to MainLiveEvent.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. Today I have with me Elena Marie Harris, who is the creator of Elena Marie, a collection of bait bag inspired clutches. Elena also recently partnered with Keds to create two nautical themed sneakers for the brand's Ladies for Ladies collection, a series that highlights female makers. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. It, well, it, it's exciting for me too. You're yeah. doing some really interesting things with your creative self. Yes. How yes. did you get involved in being a designer? Um, well, from a young age, um, I have always loved art. Um, I I spent my college years con concentrating in drawing. I went to school for art and entrepreneurship. Um, so I always had an art 
um, kind of background. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but over time, um, it kind of evolved and morphed into my love for design. Um, so yeah, I, I went to school determined to make a career um, doing something that I love to do, and I can proudly say that um, I am living that dream today. You're from South Portland originally. Yes, born and raised in South Portland, um, so I'm a Mainer at heart, <laughs> forever. Where did you go away to school? Um, I actually went locally, uh, USM, so didn't go very far. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love Maine. Um, I really think it's it's a great state and has a lot to offer. It's got so much going on. You've got the Four Seasons. You've got Portland, which is such a great um, city, especially for an artist and designer like me. There, it's such a welcoming um, place for me to to do what I want to do. Tell me about art and entrepreneurship. It's an interesting combination. Yeah, we, we often think about these starving artists. Yep, exactly. Um, so. It actually uh, worked out. It's all in the timing. Um, I went to school, actually started my my career as a nursing major um, because, like you just said, I was afraid um, that I would be a starving artist. I was like, I can't live my life doing art or design, especially in Maine. And I, I wasn't really interested in like, like going high fashion, like going to New York City or Boston. I really, like my heart is here. Um, so I knew that about myself. Um, so yeah, I went to school for nursing, figured that was a practical career. Um, I knew I could make money doing that, um, but very quickly realized it was not for me. Uh, first semester even, I didn't even last a full year and I was like, I gotta change my major. So I switched um, to art as a backup um, thinking that I'll just finish my first year doing art until I decide what I really want to do. Um, but four years later, <laughs> I, uh, I graduated um, with art and entrepreneurship. So my sophomore year is was um, when USM offered this new uh, program, which was art and entrepreneurship. So I was like, hmm, maybe if I did that, then I could have some business background and figure out how to market um, on my skill, my craft, my trade, um, and make a living doing it. And so it was kind of a risk, but I was like, I don't know what else to do, so let's just do that. And um, yeah, it's worked out really well. So uh, it's just kind of a testament to like, if you just, stick to your passion, do what you love, uh, the rest will kind of unfold itself for you. I truly believe that. What types of business things did you learn when you were going through? Um, so the program was set up, um, basically it's like an art major um, with a concentration and a business minor. Um, so just the basics really. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it you know, it's something, when you're in a classroom setting learning about business and um, how to run a business and how to market yourself and and all these things for me at least it was hard to conceptualize like what it would actually look like because they didn't have a business so it's just kind of like skills just basic skills that I learned but didn't really know how to input them until years later when I decided to start my business um, which kind of happened accidentally too. Um, I feel like I've gone into this whole thing kind of blindfolded. Um, don't really, didn't have a business plan. Um, still don't really have a business plan. I'm just kind of living uh, my life on this journey um, in doing what feels right, you know? Well, there must have been some, um, 
I guess, place of happy accident. If there, yeah. if there's a Absolutely. another word for it, I'm not sure. But yeah. where somehow what you were doing met up with what people were looking for. Right. Um, so, so once I graduated, my kind of plan was to. Um, sell t-shirts. I wanted to um, have a t-shirt business and put my artwork onto t-shirts. Um, I taught myself how to screen print um, so I could um, do the, uh, do them myself. I really love uh, the process. I love the design process. I love making things um, with my hands. I think there's a special element to that. Um, so that was kind of my plan is to do, do the t-shirt thing. And um, uh, one day, um, I saw this bait bag. I had no idea what a bait bag was. I I don't know any lobstermen, didn't grow up lobstering, um, but I discovered this cute little carrier is, is how it kind of translated to me. And the colors they come in um, are so bright and fun that it just caught my attention. So um, I, I had this bait bag and I'm like, hmm, this is really cute. How can I like use I can use this for stuff like I can put my stuff in it I can put my makeup in it or my you know use it for the beach or whatever just like accessories um so I pulled on put on my creative hat and um um, like I said I was screen printing at the time so I went to a marine store and I got a bunch of other like marine materials um that fishermen and lobstermen use for bait and fishing and stuff and I took all this stuff apart and kind of redesigned it into my first clutch um and it's again something that I just kind of took off doing it was like a weekend project and um I made this really cool handbag um and that was it I figured okay this was a one-time deal like it's just something I wanted to do um let's keep doing the t-shirt thing but I was using my handmade bag and got a lot of attention on it, a lot more than my t-shirts. So I was like, okay, maybe I can make, make a couple more, like perfect them a little bit. So I spent the next like month or two working on this bag and figuring out how to produce them. Um, and honestly, the rest is, is history. Um, I put my first um, collection, if you will, up on Etsy. And when I made my first sale, I knew that I was like onto something. I just, that feeling was indescribable. It was such a compliment and it was exciting and it really gave me so much motivation to, um, to make this work. Um, so yeah, that was three and a half years ago. How did you move from beat bags to kids sneakers um so that's the cool part about my job i love um what i do because i never know what to expect in a day every day is completely different um so i have a store on fourth street and um at the time that's where we were also producing all the bags um making them there and selling them there um so you could see the whole process and um so two summers ago, uh, the creative director of Keds uh, walked into my store, Holly Curtis, and she was asking for me. And um, so she introduced herself and I, I was like, wait, so you work for Keds, like the sneaker company? And she's like, yeah, um, we were based out of Massachusetts and I actually live in Portsmouth and um, a couple of the girls and myself, we have your handbags and we would love to talk to you about pairing up and doing a um, collection of sneakers. Um, we love your story. We love 
your concept and um, the look of, of your bags and and um, yeah, we, we want to work with you. So that was like amazing. And you know, two years ago, I was only a year and a half into my business, like still, I, you know, I'm still figuring things out today. Um, so to have such, such a big company um, come to me and asked to do a huge project like sneakers. Like I'm not a sneaker designer, but I, I got to design shoes, and I never that. That's why I don't have a business plan because like that wasn't part of the plan, but it just happened. And um, such an amazing opportunity. Um, yeah, so it's cool. <laughs> Do you think that it helped you to not be um, into lobstering or fishing when you first looked at the bait bag and said, "Oh, that could be something else"? Yeah, because you didn't know what it exactly. Was. I do. I think um, it's kind of everything because I feel like when you know a lot about something, it's very easy to get tunnel vision and just to you know think of that one thing in a specific way. Um, so me as an outsider coming in and just not even knowing what this product was. I just liked the look of it, the materials, the feel, the texture, the color. Um, so that's, as a designer, saw the potential there. And um, yeah, I was like, this could be a great bag. But if I were a lobsterman or, you know, grew up baiting bags, you know, every summer, I probably would be maybe even repulsed by it. And just like, I never want to see a bait bag again. So yeah, I was able to come into um, the situation as an unbiased, you know, uh, point of view, and and yeah, let my creativity go. Did you work in retail ever? Yes. Um, so I worked in restaurants for a while uh, through college, um, and then after college, I worked in retail for for not very long. Um, Restaurants is primarily my background. I did that for like 10 years, like bus worked my way from busing tables up to waiting to bartending. Um, and then um, when I was trying to start my t-shirt business, um, got a part-time job at J. Crew because um, I love that store. So yeah, that was my stint in retail. So I got a taste of it, but um, never thought I would have my own store someday, uh, let alone my own business. <laughs> so that's an interesting... Um that's that's also interesting because there are many people who are doing stuff online through mm -hmm. Etsy the way that you started right. out. But a lot of people don't translate that into a storefront, which has its own set of yeah. unique challenges. Yeah. So um, I love having a store because it is a physical place for me to present myself to my customers. Um, they can come. It's kind of like a home base. They can meet me. They can feel the product, see the product. Um, uh, it's It's... I don't know. It's just, I love being local too. I love the fact that we're handmade, made, made local. Um, so I think it's important for me to have a store. Um, again, it wasn't part of the business plan. Uh, I just figured I would just make some bags, maybe just sell them online. It would maybe be just a part-time thing, but things grew so quickly um, that, yeah, I really wanted to have a store. And I think um, working in retail and in the restaurant industry, which is huge customer service um, line of work, um, really set me up um, well to be able to run a store um, because I've got those skills. Like I love dealing with with customers and helping them out, and it's just it's kind of natural to me. Um, I started busing tables when I was fifteen, so um, it's been that long. <laughs> um, yeah, I just love it. 
What are some of the things that you've learned from having a store? Because a store, when you have a storefront, you're mm-hmm. also managing people. Exactly. Um, because you want to have the yeah. highest level of customer service. Yeah, it's a definitely a big responsibility. Um, it's not, um, you know, I was just, it, just like, oh, yeah, let's open a store. It's, which, which it is that. It's fun, but it's, it's a lot of work. I feel like. I, I almost have like three jobs. Like I'm a designer. I run the production side of things. We have a separate facility in Scarborough. Um, we just moved into this beginning of the year um, because we've grown so big. Um, we weren't able to make the bags in the store anymore because it's too small. So I have a store. I've got the production facility. And um, yeah, so I have to run that, manage six different people now. Um, that's, that's, we've been grown. Um, a lot since last year and yeah so I'm just I'm juggling every day juggling um I go into work and like I said earlier never know what to expect in a day um but I love it um it's kind of I you know it helps my ADD you know <laughs> um I never get bored ever I don't even know what that feels like anymore um so so yeah it's a huge responsibility but it's fun how do you keep your creative self going? Um, it it definitely comes and goes. I mean, as a creative person, you can, it's something you can't force. Um, I can't force myself to be creative. Um, I try to every day, if not every day, at least once a week, do something for myself that lets me be creative to keep it going you know um, whether it's doing a sketch or browsing on Pinterest or um, I love I have this wall in my office that's just like full of swatches and inspiration Um, so things like that Um, I also love having my production studio because uh, I'm very hands-on I love taking raw materials and creating something out of it so oftentimes um, when my staff leaves for the day, that's my time to be creative and to I'll, I'll get these like ideas in my head and and I have so many sample bags um, that I haven't launched yet. But um, you know, it's just fun for me. That's my creative process. So um, yeah, that's that's what I that's how I keep going in that department. So it's you're kind of making sure that you have protected time. Absolutely. I think it's crucial because with everything going on, running a store and running a staff and, you know, keeping up with the accounting and all the business side of things, it can, I feel like there's there's a fine line. It can be almost dangerous to creative mind um, because it's it can be overwhelming and naturally the creative side of things is where I'm most comfortable the business side of things is where I'm still learning things every day um so yeah it's important for me to stick to my roots and um and do keep the creative side going because to me that's the that's the roots of the business um if there was no creativity or no product no designing happening then we wouldn't even have a business so yeah (laughs) did you do art when you are in high school or yes. younger? Yes. Um, I've got portfolio after portfolio of just collections of things um, from from when I was growing up all the way through college. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I I think it's funny to look back. I pick, I'm like, I could have picked an easier major because I was always the student who had like canvases and portfolios and pads of paper and paint everywhere and easels and so much stuff in the dorm room or wherever I could fit it. Um, and then when I started screen printing, my roommates 
um, after college, I probably wanted to kill me because I would like screen print in the kitchen and have all this, all these things and inks everywhere. But um, that's me. That's I love. I love that. I love having. I've always had a craft bin, um, and yeah, from very very young, I uh, drawing was my thing. I love to draw things and um, and painting and that kind of. I it's like classic art to me. You know, it's like. Um, yeah, I, I just grew up doing it. So yeah, I still have that, that instinct. So with all of that, and now knowing where you've come, how is it that at any point you said, oh, I should be a nurse? <laughs> that was f- definitely fear. Um, that was, it was because I was afraid that, or not even that, it was, I didn't think that I could do something for quote work um, that I really like to do. I thought work had to be something that, um, you know, was work. And my work now doesn't ever feel like work. I mean, it's a lot of work, but there, you know, there's a difference. Um, my days fly by um, because I love what I do versus, you know, if I were a nurse, it's just not in my nature um some people are so good at it and those people are amazing but for me um just not my thing um so yeah i thought i had to go to school for something like that because i knew it was a guaranteed career like a guaranteed job going to school for art there's no real guaranteed artist job or or and if there is they're far and few between um so i thought that a nursing degree would be a good security deposit on my life kind of um and yeah quickly discovered that i just can't force it um i'm just gonna do something i like and figure out the rest later that's kind of how i work i work backwards i'm not a great planner at all (laughs) ironically so um yeah (laughs) do you have people in your family who are in practical careers like nursing um no actually um my father is an entrepreneur he has his own business um so I grew up with that mindset and living that lifestyle and um actually my fiance now is an entrepreneur um so it's very helpful for me to be around um those people they're you know both of them are very inspiring to me and um every day you know push me to be better like they have their own very different businesses but I can still see like how a business is run and how they do things and they deal with their customers and you know it's all the same kind of um uh background you know um yeah (laughs) so that's still really interesting that you Nobody else told you that you needed to do something practical. I mean, your yeah. father's an entrepreneur, yep. and you hung around with entrepreneurs, yep. and yet something inside of you, whatever it was, yep. like, I don't know, was it like people around you were all being practical? or um, uh, Back at the time, yeah. I mean, a lot of my like friends going off to school were going to be teachers or nurses or, you know, going for science or those, you know, classic things, and... I'm just like, well, I guess I should go on that boat too. And at that time in my life, I was so much of a follower. Um, I really was. Um, I, I wasn't very confident in myself. And I just felt like I had to follow the crowd. Um, at that age, I if you had told me I would 
start my own business and have a store and be in charge of people, I would have never believed you. I would have laughed. Um, be like, I can't do that, you know. Um, but yeah, going through college, kind of when I got tired of, you know, I'm like, nursing is painful. I can't do it. So I'm like, all right, let's just go back to basics here. What do I love to do? And like I said, I'll just figure it out later. And um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> well, and I think you've already said it. There, there are some people for whom nursing or practical careers of any sort are are very well suited. They're very good at them. Yes. It's in their nature. Mm-hmm. It, it just mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, but there are actually a fair number of people that I believe go into things that are, quote, practical, especially yeah. in this day and age yeah. where we have student loan debt that's exactly. incredible. Mm-hmm. So everybody's saying, well, get the most out of your education. In order mm-hmm. to do that, then take this mm-hmm. this straight path. Exactly. And exactly. I, and I wonder how much unhappiness that that creates in some people. Not everybody. Right. But some people maybe who are more like you, who absolutely have other things that they'd like to do, but they're not really sure what that looks like yet. Right. Like going to school for nursing, I would have paid the same as I paid for my art degree, but there's a better, I guess on paper, a better chance that I would have gotten a job and been able to pay for it than going to school for art. You know, like there's, it's tough. It's it's a lot it's a lot riskier um, to graduate and be able to find something. Um, there's no guarantee that, you know, okay, I'm going to go to school for art and open my own business someday um, selling my art. There's no guarantee that that's going to work. Going to school, being a nurse, getting a degree in nursing, there's definitely a need for that. So there's something to be said about that. So, um, yeah, it, it's it was risky. Um, but I had my... I kind of in the back of my head was like, well, I can always, you know, bartend. I always had that in my back pocket, but I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life either. So, um, you know, graduating from college and even going into college, there's so much stimulation. You know, it's this whole new phase of your life. There's so many choices to be made. And um, yeah, it's just like, what path do I choose? So um, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and I definitely felt that pressure, but um, yeah, worked through it. <laughs> you said you're not really a planner, but I would guess you'd have to have some planning skills yeah. in order to have kept all of this yeah. going. I've become a lot better um, at planning and organization. Um, I still am not the best planner, but there are certain things, like I have certain standards, like, like I don't know, there's... Like, I have a business to run, so there, yeah, like, you said, there's got to be some element of planning in there, you know. Um, I'm employing people, and we've, we've got customers, we've got orders to go out the door every day, so there are deadlines. Um, so I guess I've become one, kind of been forced into it. Um, I'm a procrastinator by nature, um, but I've, I've learned to overcome that, um, and I'm still learning it. Uh, it's still, you know, something I'm learning, but... Um, yeah. Well, it's something that I, I think about a lot because we all believe that, or many people believe that they're going to go get their education, come out, and be 100% trained to do exactly. whatever it is they're going to mm-hmm. do for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. But there's no way that you could have known, A, what you were going to be doing, and right. B, what you would have needed to know. Right. So most of us are going to continue on learning. Yeah. And kind of teaching ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's no handbook for life. Um, 
you can learn all the basics in a classroom, but kind of like what I said earlier, I didn't think or know how to apply those business skills I was learning to to something because I didn't have a business. Uh, now that I have a business, I can see so much further into it and I'm learning a lot more. I mean, school like going to school is great for, for learning the basics. It taught me how to teach myself how to do stuff. Um, so it definitely set me up for those skills. Um, but yeah, I've learned so much more now after school. Um, just being out in the real world, there's nothing like, you know, real world experience. And that's why I think internships are so great. Um, they were kind of, when I was in school, I was, I was required to do one internship, but um, that it wasn't really a thing. And now I feel like you have to have like three of them to graduate, which I think is awesome. Um, get that real world experience. We have an intern now working at Elena Marie. So um, it's great. It's cool. And she's been got to see all sides of the business, the retail, the production, um, the online, the sh like shipping, design, everything. So um, yeah. And now she can go back to school, maybe thinking of that kind of model in the back of her head while she's sitting in her um, business operations class, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. Is there also a creativity to the business side? Um, yeah, it's definitely an art in itself. Um, you, not everybody can run a business. And some days I'm like, I'm like I don't even know if I can do, <laughs> do it. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. It's not cut out for everybody it's I like to say it's a lifestyle um, because I am married to my business um, I do it all day every day it's always on my mind I never clock out um, but you have you have to love what you do that's a big reason why um, yeah I encourage people to go down to your store also yeah. to look you up online yep um, hopefully yep. they will be inspired to get an entire Elena Marie line to yes. proudly wear out into the world love it <laughs> I've been speaking with Elena Marie Harris who is the creator of Elena Marie a collection of bait bag inspired clutches she also recently partnered with Keds to create two nautical themed sneakers for the brand's ladies for ladies collection a series that highlights female makers I wish you all the best, and I am really glad that you decided to go with what made you happy. Yes, same here. Me too. I'm living my best life right now. <laughs> so thanks for having me. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 309. Our guests have included Dr. Clayton Rose and Elena Marie Harris. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our photos on the Love Maine Radio Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector, Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. 
Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.